Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, do you ever just want to sit and reflect for a moment about what just happened? How many of you are thankful that we have an opportunity to worship right now? I'm so thankful for AJ and the team. I mean, every week I mention it, but uh, really, this morning, feeling blessed by our time in worship. And I'm also blessed by the theme. Uh, as we go into the book of Daniel, we're actually going to be looking at some moments where we get little glimpses of what will happen in the future. And as beautiful as this morning was, it won't be a drop compared to what we'll experience in eternity with the Lord. Do you believe it? That's why we're here. So I'm going to, uh, I just want you to pause and reflect about how beautiful that moment was. And then we're going to take a super hard right turn into what I'm about to do next. Okay? Now, I think guys on my staff actually have asked me to think twice about this. I have two envelopes here. And hold on just a second. Okay. I know what some of you are thinking. Your grandma just stepped out of the shower and onto the stage. (laughs) For those of you tuning in at home, uh, you did not just accidentally turn on TBN. This is Salem Heights. I'm going to try something this morning. I'm Swami Green, all right? And I need to, in the room, gather people who think like me. Now, just check out the outfit first, okay? And then join me in this moment of meditation. I have a trick for you. Now, I should say I have a truth. Some people in the room in here are actually deep, concentrated, spiritual individuals, and they will track with me every step along the way. I have a couple of quizzes for you to find out if you are that kind of individual. Are you ready? All right, here we are, Swami Green, first (laughs) test to see if you and I are the same person. Think of a number between 1 and 10 without saying it out loud, just think of it. Now, multiply your secret number by 2. Add 8. At this point, some of you should be getting your calculators out. (laughs) Divide your answer by 2. Subtract the original number that you chose from your answer that you just had. Convert your answer into a corresponding letter. So if one is A, two is B, so forth. Get a letter. Now I want you to think of a state that starts with that letter. Get that state (laughs) in your mind. I know, only the people that are deep, right? Okay, you're going to be hanging in with me here. The second letter in that state, think of an animal that corresponds to that letter. And now think of the color of that animal. And if you are thinking along with Swami Green, you should have a gray elephant (laughs) from Delaware. Are we okay? All right, hold on. Deep people, stay with me. Only the deep ones. I have one more. 
for you this morning. This is going to blow your mind, okay? Hold on, just stay right in here, back in with Grandma on the stage. I want you to think right now, in your minds, what day is Christmas? Just think of it in your mind. I'm going to ask you to answer two things out loud in a moment, but start in your mind. What day is Christmas? What is a number between one and three? Ponder. What are hamburgers made of? Picture it. What side of the road do they drive on in Europe? Now, very quickly, in your mind, I want you to think of a color and a tool. Say it out loud. Anybody thinking of a red hammer in here? Just raise your hand. There we go. Look at all the hands around here. Swami followers, all of you. There we are. I have one more mind trick for you, but it's already 9.37. You will have to assume I'm deep. Oh, that was amazing. I don't know what my hair looks like, but I do know those tricks you can find on the internet for only pennies. Why would I start our message this morning with that? We come to the second chapter of Daniel, and the king has had a moment, all right? Just trying to fix something here. (laughs) He's had a moment in the middle of the night. He has a dream, and it is so profound, it is so impactful, that he knows he has heard from God. Now, his wise men have pulled tricks like this all the time things he couldn't figure out. How was it that he was thinking like this? And he would actually tell them things and they would make up stuff and they would keep making up little changes and little observations until it looked like they were brilliant. But he knew it was a trick. He hadn't started as king. He had started as the general and he had listened to these false magicians give faulty information. He knew it was all fakery. He wanted to hear from an actual representative of God. And what we get in chapter two is his attempt at hearing from God. Now, it looks a lot like the way people around us act when they want to hear from God. He has a tantrum. But in the midst of the tantrum, the God of the universe speaks up. And it begs not just for his attention and gives him clarity, but it actually begs for our attention today. Are you ready for it? Daniel chapter 2, turn there with me. And while you're turning there in some of your Bibles, you will notice partway through uh, the chapter, chapter 2, verse 4, some of the translators will put a note in there that says Aramaic begins here. It goes all the way through chapter 7. It's just we're going to drop little interesting tidbits on you along the way as you study this book. This is part of the formation of the book of Daniel. So there's actually what's called chiistic structure in the center of Daniel, chapters 2 through 7. Chapter 2, 3, and 4 correspond with chapter 5, 6, and 7. Chapters 2 and 7, you'll see similar themes. Chapters 3 and 6, you'll see similar themes. Chapter 4 and 5, similar themes. Whenever in Hebrew, 
You have a chiastic structure. You'll see this in the Psalms. You see it uh, in the book of Genesis, in the flood uh, and creation stories. Whenever you have chiastic structure, it's not the beginning and the end it wants you to focus on. It is the center. It will put something at the center of the chiastic structure that you are supposed to take as the central theme that it's been talking about. What is at the center of Daniel uh, uh, 2 through 7? This statement. And Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me, and I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does whatever he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the central theme. God is in control. There is no other great power. Amen? Nebuchadnezzar bows to it. The next king is measured by it. And it's also a statement put out over the children of Israel. They, for a long time, thought that they were the great power. That there was something about them that was great. They had mistaken the whole set of prophecies that had led to them having the land. They weren't great. God is. And he chooses the least among all the people to prove it. Do you believe that? You are not a follower of God because you're so amazing. You follow God because he is. It's the center theme of the book. So chapter 2 highlights that. By the way, a couple other things that the Aramaic does. It adds credibility. The type of Aramaic that is used in the book of Daniel is called Imperial Aramaic. It was used earlier than 500 BC. All of the, uh, the critics have said, no, this is proof that it had to be written later. But now they have discovered papyri. Uh, one of them you can look up online. It's called the Elephantine uh, papyri, where they actually have this type of Aramaic that was used in high court situations way before The other people say Daniel was written. Why do they say it had to be written later? Because this is prophetic and it comes true and they don't believe in prophecy. The other thing that the Aramaic does is it's just super cool, okay? Imagine for a moment that you're watching some movie and they want it to feel a little bit horrific. And so you end up somewhere in New Orleans and a a Haitian voodoo guy comes out and he's not speaking English, he's speaking Creole. You freak out, right? Don't watch that movie, by the way. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be scary. (laughs) Switch it to Harry Potter. All of a sudden, they start speaking Latin, and you think it's some other foreign language. It is. It's Latin. But it feels all of a sudden like it adds credibility to the moment. Daniel switches to Aramaic at the moment that the Chaldeans show up. By the way, a race of these people, Chaldeans, would stay as magicians and kingmakers All the way until the time of Jesus. They show up and they said, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? I think Daniel teaches these people and tells them to prepare for Jesus. And some of that starts in these chapters. Isn't that fun? That's not even the message. That's just free. Let's get to this this morning. Now, because of the importance of this entire chapter, this is what I want you to be able to to hang on to. We're going to actually have a memorization verse at the end. I'm not teaching you. it's, It's a personal verse. I just made this up to outline the chapter. It's not scripture, but I hope it helps you remember the themes of this book. And the first thing that I want you to see, I want you to memorize this to help you with the outline, and that is God disturbs the sleep 
of kings. Just in your chairs there, read with me in your paper Bible or the one that you have turned on or on the screen, read along with me. It says this, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him. Sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, the mediums, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream, and I am anxious to understand it. Now, by the way, that's just an understatement in the original language there. He's not only anxious, he is stirred up. He is um, fomenting. He is running around and overwhelmed. It's an anxiety that has impacted all of his character. We see that here. Verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king. Some of your Bibles, it says Aramaic begins here. Dramatic pause. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Now the king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, listen to this, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made into a garbage dump. He's an angry little man. (laughs) But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts. A reward, great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. And they answered a second time, may the king tell the dream to his servants and we will make known to you the interpretation. And the king replied, I know for certain that you are trying to gain time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You've conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. By the way, just a side note, do you know that even rulers know the advisors around them are lying? Selah. (laughs) So tell me the dream and I will know that you can give its interpretation. There's his switch. The Chaldeans answered the king, this is an important thing because in this they were wise. No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. That's a profound statement, and it's absolutely true, isn't it? There are some things that only God, the revealer of mysteries, can reveal. God disturbs the sleep of kings. It's said that on the morning of the D-Day invasion that they could not wake Hitler. For a period of time before this, uh, the allied people had actually gotten together a great big plan in order to have the D-Day invasion. They had actually set up some stuff in the Mediterranean that involved, of all the crazy things, blow up tanks and fake men in ships. They had positioned camps and all of these other things with people who weren't actually there so that when uh, other spies were flying over, they would see it and assume that a great army was amassing down there. So Hitler had had part of his army pushed down there to prepare for an invasion. 
But also, he had begun to get uh, irritated with some of his commanders, and so he had actually issued a decree, you cannot remove any of the panzer movements from the interior unless you get my permission. And he was so overwhelmed with a lack of sleep and disturbed by the war that he actually gave a command on the evening before the D-Day invasion. He said, do not wake me. I need to sleep. And he slept. The morning of the D-Day invasion, he slept all the way almost until noon, and even then did not give a clear command to his people until three o'clock that afternoon, and already the invasion had been a success for the Allies. Why did this man that was on the edge of being able to take that, he didn't listen to Rommel, his commander, on all the things that he would have done. If Rommel would have been able to prepare the way he wanted, we would not have been able to win. But God puts him to sleep and sets him aside. On the day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev had been briefed by his men about the plan that they had and what was about to happen down in Cuba. He could not sleep when he realized what would happen with one push of his button. He was so disturbed. We still don't realize all the things that they had planned and the way that they were going to go about that assault. Some of those uh, papers are still um, not available to us. Coming from Russia, I'm not anticipating any clarity. But he wrote on his own that for weeks he could not sleep so that when Kennedy offered him an opportunity to back out, he said he blinked. And he slept for the first time in a month. God disturbs the sleep of ungodly leaders so that they will hear. Do you believe that God can actually enter the heart of the wicked to cause good things to result? Do you believe that? This happens when Abraham sets his wife Sarah aside because a king takes her. When Joseph is put in prison, a king is disturbed in his sleep and Joseph is brought forward. Esther arrives when a king cannot sleep all night long and she just happens to show up to say, King, please, my people are in desperate need. Daniel here is also in the same situation. And in every situation, wrap your mind around this. The people that are believers were in need and hear me, they had no power. They didn't rise up They laid down and prayed, and God stirred wicked kings. He disturbs the sleep of kings, but the second thing I want you to see is that he answers the prayers of men. Starting in verse 12, because of this, the king became violently angry, and he gave orders to destroy the wise men of Babylon. That's a bad day for them. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Now notice Daniel hasn't been in the room. He hasn't been a part of this. Why? We're told at the beginning that it's a three-year process for these proselytes to Nebuchadnezzar's realm to be able to take their rightful place. He has only just graduated from Chaldean school, all right? Daniel went to public school in Babylon. Do you think you got it bad? Here he is graduating from that place, trained by these people. And it says it's the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the first year that we're looking about. He was not yet king. He was still the commander of the army. His dad dies. He takes over the kingdom. In his second year, Daniel has just graduated. He's not even powerful enough to be seen in the room. But he does still have a presence with the commanders because of his discretion and kindness. 
It says, Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. It doesn't say he went into full detail, but we already know what the situation is. The king is worried he's going to be lied to. He wants to hear from God, and he knows you guys don't represent him. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king an interpretation. And Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heavens for what? Mercy. Concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the Babylonian wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of heaven. Now, anytime that your Bible indents something, it's because something heavy is in there. This is worthy of you reading on your own. We're just going to brush over it. It says, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Amen? Amen. He changes the time and seasons. He removes kings and establishes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. Light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what we have asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came to him and said, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king. I'll give him the interpretation. And Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. Isn't it important to note that Daniel at that time is still marked as one of those people? Wherever you go, are you known as a believer? The king said in a reply to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream and its interpretation? And Daniel said this, underline it, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream And the visions that came to you in your mind as you lay in bed were these. Pause there. I have something else in my little happy basket here. I want you to think about what Daniel is actually saying. Two keys to understand. Because Daniel at this moment calls a prayer meeting. And he gives us what we are to do when we are without power and we don't know what to do. Doesn't say that Daniel raged. Um, there was no angry tweet, all right? He couldn't send out, I mean, he could send out pigeons with stuff tied to their feet, but he didn't do it. He's not irritated. He's not thrashing around blaming the Chaldeans for all their years of irritating service and the way that they had lied and how obvious it was. He's not smashing himself around his room, bothered by his situation. He says, Lord, my life's in your hands. Will you give me mercy? When you don't know what to do, do you believe that prayer is powerful? It changes the entire scene here. Prayer, not Daniel. 
It's not him rising up, it's him falling down on his face. Folks, if we really want to make a difference in our world right now, today, it starts with individuals, not collective, that comes secondary. Individuals in the quiet, in the secret place saying, Lord God, I believe in you. Will you help me to be your emissary in this place? But secondly, he knew that he was the glove. Imagine for a moment that actually in this room there is somebody who tragically has some medical need, heart attack, cancer. Some of us have seen gloves like this, right? When you come out of that surgery that saved your life, when you come out of that situation where the doctor has been so skillful, when was the last time you said, I've got to see the glove that did it? It's not the glove. Daniel was the glove. It's the hand inside the glove that does the work. Are you looking for a man to rise up? Are you looking for some individual to be your helper, your significant one? You're still praying as men pray. You should be praying for God to fill some silly fool and use him like a glove. We're praying for God to rise up in any generation. If there will be revival, it's because God fills people, not because people get it right. If I handed all of you right now the knobs to the universe, do you think you would get it right? How many of us would still be here by the end of the week? God knows how to tune the universe. He knows how to take care of hearts, and he knows what it is that we need. Amen? Now, we're just getting to the heart of this, and we're out of time. Stay with me. Are you, are you okay? Yeah? There's a third thing I want you to see, and that is he causes the rise and fall of nations. It's right there in verse 21. We'll start in verse 29. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of, min of mysteries has let you know what will happen. And as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king, and you might have understanding the thoughts of your mind. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared, and the statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without hands touching it and struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. And the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. That means they blew away. Wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will tell the king its interpretation. Notice Daniel doesn't take credit. He's speaking for God and for his friends. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you, listen to this, anyone who's in power 
This is true. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky. He's handed them over to you and made you ruler of them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to yours and then another, a third kingdom, a bronze one, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will come. Notice, he goes back to long descriptions. There will be as strong as iron, for the iron crushes and shatters everything like iron that smashes it. It will crush and smash all the others. And you saw the feet and the toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It'll be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were partly of fired clay. The kingdom will be strong. Part of it will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another but will not hold together. Just pause. Reflect on our current day. Just as the iron does not mix with fired clay, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and will bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. Really quick, just ponder the image that was actually set up before Daniel. We have these images. This will be in the notes. You can find them online. But I just want to make a couple of cursory comments for time. And then I want you to understand when we get to chapter 7, this is seen from man's side. Chapter 7 is seen from God's perspective. And he gives us a little more details. So we're only thin on details, just enough for Daniel to understand this is or tell the king that this is real. Babylon is the first one, the head of gold. Uh, why is that a head of gold? I believe it's that way for two reasons that become evident later. First of all, he has dominion over all of the earth in some significant way, even over animals. But also, I believe it's a head of gold because it's a picture of the kind of rule and reign that the Antichrist someday will have. It's the closest to a millennial kingdom, only with a satanic ruler at the head. Babylon has been a problem for Jerusalem ever since the book of Genesis. Right as soon as they get off the boat, people begin to say, forget God, let's gather together for power. And the Tower of Babel is started. When Abraham is assaulted with Lot by ten kings, the first king, even though he wasn't the greatest of them, the first king listed is the king of the land of Shinar. That's where Babylon is. When uh, Achan discovers something that he really wants, it was a cloak from Shinar, a picture of wealth, of prosperity, of safety, of significance, and he hides it in his tent, and it's the first failed battles that happened were a result of Shinar, Babylon's influence on God's people. Hezekiah shows all the men of Babylon uh, his great wealth, and later on they would come and take it away. It was Hezekiah's failure, Babylon's preparation. Babylon is then chosen, it says in Scripture, as an instrument of discipline. He says, this is my rod against you. And God disciplines Israel rather than protecting them with Babylon. It becomes a byword. Jesus, Peter, John all speak about Babylon, but they don't just speak about it as a literal place. They actually say it becomes a world system, both and. A world system of wealth, of assumed peace, of collective safety, collective power, and of decadence. When the, the Puritans were fleeing from England, they said in their journals, let us flee from Babylon. It is assailing our eternal souls. They thought they were leaving Babylon. Now I just want you to pause and think for a moment. 
If you were to ask people in third world countries, if you were asking people in socialist countries, in communist countries, where is the place where I can have wealth and safety? Where is the place where I can live a decadent life and where people around me will be able to join me if I want? Where is the place where we will have collective power and significance? What is the name of the place they would pick? Just keep it in your mind. Is it possible, folks, that we are a Christian nation with a Babylonian representation? Do we have a reputation that looks like Babylon? Let me ask you a little more personal question. Do you vote as a Babylonian or a believer? I just got a little too real, didn't it? Let's just get that back up here, and I'll turn in my resignation Monday. (laughs) Medo-Persia, next kingdom that is listed there. It actually was a great kingdom. Two arms, it's shown right there. That gets amplified in chapter 7, we'll look. Greece, a kingdom with power, but very little value. Why? Is it bronze? It's bronze because everything that the conquerors did, they gave to their people to keep the armies with them. The reason they conquered so quickly was, if you join my army, you get to keep the spoils of war. Not much going up to the head. And then Rome, a kingdom starting as one, but it was known as a kingdom that ruled like iron. It was known even in Rome's day as that. It starts as one but ends in ten toes. The only clear interpretation is that at the end of this Roman influence, it will have strength mixed with clay, brittle alliances. Do you know that up until the end of the Ottoman Empire, 1918, that you still had somebody in Germany that was called the Kaiser? It's their version of Caesar. That all the way up into Russia, the influence that was there, you still had somebody named the Tsar, their version of the Caesar? That even if you look around into those places that have a senate or a republic, you're using terms that go all the way back to Rome? That the power bases that we see in Europe and the power bases we even see within the United States find their philosophy and their direction and their beginning in Roman thought? There still is a little bit of that here. And what do you have inside that kind of governmental thinking? You have people that rise up with an iron fist and they start smashing. Have you seen that anywhere? Have you seen any overreach ever in your lifetime? I know I'm just hitting all the buttons, right? But on top of that, it says that it was mixed with clay. Isn't it interesting? This is the only place where a non-metal is used. Where's the first time that we see clay? It's when God makes clay out of the dust of the ground, and he forms Adam. It's an iron rule mixed with the opinions of man. Some people have said this is a picture of democracy and any other iron rule that may be inserted there, battling the opinions of men not able to form long enough to have any real strength and the rule of overreaching governments coming in and attacking. But there will be ten kingdoms eventually that arise out of the ashes of Rome. That's the picture. The emphasis, though, is on the very end. Note the kingdom at the end. It's a stone that is cut without hands. No man can take credit for it. will crush all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself it will endure. We only have time this morning for one question. If the other four kingdoms actually happened and appeared, will the fifth? I'm going to say this declaratively this morning. Jesus is coming, 
and he's bringing the kingdom. Amen? This isn't the final stage. This isn't our last hope. This isn't the final moments. Final phrase. We've said God disturbs the sleep of kings. He answers the prayers of men. He causes the rise and fall of nations. And finally, but only God knows when. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the fired clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is reliable. And King Nebuchadnezzar fell down and worshipped Daniel and gave orders to present an offering, an incense to him. And the king said to Daniel, now he he gets it wrong in verse 46, he gets it right in verse 47. Your God is indeed the God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. And the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice now their Babylonian names are brought out. They're put in places of power as they were known by the Babylonians, just like Saul goes from that Jewish name to Paul as he identified with Gentiles to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. We're out of time, so I'm just going to ask you this, folks. Is prophecy, when we see it in Scripture, only for the past? Just pause. There are some today who think that. All these things are fulfilled in the past, and they say it's just neat for us to reflect on how God did this in the past. Uh, It gives us a little bit of clarity on the fact that we can trust Jesus. Is prophecy only for the past? Some say that prophecy is just a metaphor for the present, so we can actually see things in the past that happened, but then in every single age, we see little tidbits of these things. Uh, Paul in First and Second Thessalonians indicates there is some of that that's true. He says, the Antichrist is coming. He says, but the spirit of the Antichrist you can see in every age. You see him trying to knock his head to break out in every age. Why? Because the spirit behind whoever rises up is satanic. Is it just a metaphor for the present? Or, or is it a detailed map of the future? Now, be careful. Some get lost in the future and forget the present, and they don't reflect on the past. I would have you think about this during the course of this week. I believe that prophecy reminds us who holds the keys. There are some that are revealed in the past. There are some implications for the present, but it is a guarantee that God has spoken as clearly as he did to Daniel in the past. He's told us about some things that will happen in the future, and we should just as carefully investigate. Amen? God holds the keys, and it fixes our hope, get this, on the actions of God, not man. If there's any hope in our day, it is not in us. It's in God rising up and changing our situation. If there's any hope in our day, it's in actual repentance of God's people. And it's in revival in our nation. Do you believe that? That's our only hope. And with that, we're going to close. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask now that you would take this chapter and you would cause us to really think Help us to be able to sense what it is, Father, that you would have us do next. There are some right now 
in this room and, and they hear these things and they can see what it was said to Daniel, but the question might be, what about me? Father, for those that are right now hurting and they're so disturbed by their current situation, they do not know what to do. Help them to see that they just need to turn to you. Father, for those that are here and investigating, and I know we have some, and they're not sure yet if they have a relationship with you, cause them to bow their knee today and say, Lord God, I accept Christ as my Savior. Cause them to be able to move forward as a result in a new relationship with the God of heaven. These prophecies are also to convince us that you are king. But Father, also for those of us that are believers and we've been living a weak life, not representing you, not living for you. Father, help us to stop thinking that we are the hand that fills the glove and to be the glove. We pray that you would allow us to just be filled with you and allow you to do work through us. Convince us of the next step we are to take and then help us to do that with confidence because of your movement, not our will. No one will look to us at the end of days. They will see your activity and praise you. Father, let us not get in the way of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.